Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. There are really uh, three different aspects of the way you can look at end-time prophecy. You can look at it as not prophetical at all, and you could say that the book of Revelations is all metaphors and similes and the horse isn't really a horse, of course, of course, unless that horse is Mr. Ed. You look at it that way, and it doesn't mean anything. It means whatever you want it to make. That's one way to look at Bible prophecy. Another way to look at it is to say that that Bible prophecy was already fulfilled. And if you take the position that the Bible prophecy is already fulfilled, or to some extent is almost already fulfilled, that is a preterist position. And then you would look and you would perhaps say that the book of Revelations from chapter 6 through most, maybe chapter 18 into chapter 19, was all fulfilled somewhere before usually the number is 70 A.D. And then there's another way, and that is that the prophecy yet lies in the future, uh, that there is prophecy that was given that was immediately fulfilled and some that was, was in the future. And if you look at it that way, uh, then you're going to come to a... Uh, uh, a, a well a way that is usually referred to as a dispensational point of view and I thought it interesting to take a moment because there are many uh, today and many I think good people uh, but they hold what is called a mid-tribulational view or a mid-wrath view or a, I should say a pre-wrath or a mid-trib view and they are the merging of the post-millennialist or the post-tribulationalist and the pre-tribulationalist and essentially what they have is they believe that the Lord will come for his own uh, at the end of chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. Uh, and those first portion of the chapter 6 where it deals with the four writers, that believers of this New Testament age will experience all of that. That's what they hold to it, and it's called a mid-tribulational viewpoint. Um, mostly from the end of chapter 6 onward, uh, a mid-trib and someone like ourselves that would hold that these that the church is gone before the saints are gone before chapter six we're in agreement from chapter seven mostly on but that is an important thing and a text that they use and they use it to some some ability is matthew chapter 24 and that's what kind of in our mind takes me back here again and again and again there are other texts that they use daniel chapter 9 Daniel chapter 9 really talks about three princes. It talks about the prince of the Messiah. It talks about the prince of the people that shall come. And then a third prince of the people that shall come. And that's what separates uh, those 70 weeks there in Daniel. Now, well, a post, post, if you will, someone that uh, is uh, uh, post-trib, if you will, or post-millennial, uh, they believe it's already fulfilled. They look at that being fulfilled in an Assyrian ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and then, of course, a mid-tribber, because he would not agree on all of that, would say that sometimes it's fulfilled with Herod the Great. Now, this is getting into the weeds quick, but I'm just telling you it does worth to go back and to look at Matthew chapter 24, and that's what our intent is. Now, if you'll look at the size of it, um, in my Bible, there's 51 verses. So... We're not going to read it all, but we're going to work our way through it according to our notes, and I want to encourage you to read it. Equally, you will note in this handout that I've given you that there are other passages referred to that we will probably only have time to turn to or reference, uh, but there are two other passages, 
Luke chapter 21 and Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, and Matthew chapter 24. Really, if you read them, they're all parallel accounts. They're the synoptic coverage of the Lord's Sermon on the Mountain. So essentially, it is the POV, point of view, of Mark, Luke, and Matthew. And if you read it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I see this right here. I know what's going on right here. I've got this. And that's where they're at. And so it would do us well to consider these things. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Note here in the few first verses, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple. It's an important time frame. He had departed from the temple. And his disciples came unto him for to shew him the buildings of the temple. Uh, let me say right there that this was a fantastical building for its time and age. It had been destroyed around 586 B.C., and you'll read of men like Ezra that will come back and build upon it. And then in the intervening time before the, Lord of, uh, before the Lord's coming and after Nehemiah and Ezra's time frame, there is 400 what we call silent years. Uh, some folks will say that it's the time between Malachi and Matthew. And in context, they're correct, but Malachi came before Nehemiah. So you just keep that in mind. But there is 400 silent years. And during that time, uh, there was something of a kingdom of the Jews. Uh, they had returned. They had set up a kingdom. Uh, they had thrown off, to a great degree, the yoke of Antiochus Epiphanes. And they had established something of what is called the Hasmonean dynasty, or commonly referred to as the Maccabees. And during that time, the, the temple would, would wane in its physical abilities, its structure. It got damaged at times. And so one of the descendants, intermarried descendants, an Idumean named Herod the Great would come in. And Idumean is a, kind of a, a, Greece, a Grecian interpretation of the Aramaic. But do you know what Idumean means? It means a descendant of Edom. He is not a Jew. You'll find something about this guy in Matthew chapter 2. He does not like anybody being referred to as the king of the Jews but him. But he is not a Jew. That should be interested. But in order that he might uh, curry some favor with the Jews that are present, he invests tremendous wealth in this temple and even donates this, this ivy uh, decoration of gold. I mean, it's massive. It is massive, and he rebuilds it, and he expands it, and this is what the disciples are looking at. Jesus has just left from this, and they're kind of leaving the place, and the disciples are looking around this building and saying, now this, this is a piece of work. Uh, in fact, the walls, I, I forget the thickness of them in the mass. They were massive walls. Uh, Josephus said when they went to burn down that temple, they began to stuff rubble inside of those stone walls. Uh, there were hollow points, and they would stuff rubble in there and light it and get an intense fire, which caused the stones to break. And the only part of the temple, old temple, that was left in existence was the foundation or exterior pillars, which really weren't part of the temple. But in its day, it was an edifice that had stood for close to 400-plus years. It was massive. It was ornate. It was beautiful, and it was the Jews. And, of course, if you'll keep in mind that the, even with the temple modifications that Herod made, it didn't hold a candle to Solomon's temple that stood for the better part of also four to 500 years. And so they're admiring this. 
Notice what Jesus tells them in verse number two. Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily, I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, can you imagine this thing stood for 400 years? Imagine your disbelief, and let me be committing a little sacrilege here. Imagine you have the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C., and you're wandering around, and you're looking at some of our national edifices. Maybe, maybe you're at the Capitol building. Maybe you'll get an opportunity to tour the White House, but particularly the Capitol building. It's, it's fairly expansive. It's multi-level. Um, it's got collar, columns and crepes and all this fancy stuff. And you look at it, and you think about what it's endured and how long it has been standing. And someone looks at you and says, Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. What would be your initial heartfelt? A couple things, right? Some of us might say, over my dead body. Right? I won't live to see the day. I'll do whatever necessary to preserve that. If we could be possible of thinking that, know that these disciples and Jews would feel the same. Not only is that temple the center in worship, but is the center of their very existence. Why do you think they're still fighting about the Temple Mount? This, this is pivotal to their existence. We might look at that and say, how could it ever be? I mean, 200 plus years is going to stand forever. Anything that stood 200 years is going to stand forever. Don't think that thought didn't go through their head. And then you might think, well, that would be a sad day indeed. Well, I'm going to tell you the disciples also thought, considering the source of this prophecy, they looked at Jesus and said, well, if this is going to be turned upside down, man, that would be a sad day indeed. Keep reading. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, hence is why we call this the Olivet Discourse. He is not preaching to a mass of individuals that are mixed with believers and unbelievers. That's the difference between John, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. What do we call that? Who's he preaching to? The multitude. They're mixed. What do you mean? There's some believers and some non-believers. But here... Who is it? Verse number three, he said upon the Mount of Olives, who came to him? Okay, so they believe what he's saying, right? They know who he is. They've communed with him, but they've got a couple of questions. Now, in their mind, well, let me just keep reading. They came to him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be? Particularly, they clarify that question with two others. What shall be the sign of thy coming? And of the what? End of the world. Now, was the temple destroyed? Absolutely. Was that the end of the world? Was it the end of the Jewish world? Well, I hope not, because John had not yet completed the canon of Scripture. But the temple was destroyed. But as they begin to talk, I want you to keep a mindset that we'll revisit at the end of this lesson. These disciples, where are they eschatologically? What are all of the disciples, the 12 that are gathered, where are they at eschatologically? Looking towards the end time, what do they know about the end time? I'm going to ask you, do they know anything about the rapture? How do you know that? Paul said, behold... I show you a mystery. 
we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. I don't know anything about that. In fact, look over in John chapter 11. Now, what's the chapter title for John 11? Resurrection particularly of who? Of Lazarus. Lazarus would kind of be like one of these disciples. He's a pious man. He's a good man. He's a godly man. He believes Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is a Jew. I want you to note this. We go in chapter 11. Uh, Mary and Martha talking there. Um, and I want you to notice in verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not been dead. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. What's she referencing? I know you have the power to give him life. Thou art the Christ. And Martha and Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. What does her Hebrewic eschatology tell her? When we go to a funeral, what's the... What's the Bible preaching preacher say? We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. They'll talk about the resurrection. Did you do a graveside service of a believer? Any preacher that has any worthy of theological salt in his body is going to reference the immediate resurrection that could happen, will he not? He'll talk about this being resurrection ground. That the Lord's coming. They which are dead and alive shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be our pods are called away. Every one of them will mention that if they have any theological truth to them. Well, Martha is a Jew. She's in a different dispensation. There's some things she don't know, and she reveals it in the next statement. Notice what she says. Jesus said, thy brother shall rise again. Notice what she says. She said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. If I can give you the Hebrew equivalent language, it's duh. Duh. I know he's going to, Lord, I know that at the last day, note the emphasis, is there an S on the end of the day? No. She is not talking about a series of years like we would sometimes say the end times or the last days, like 2 Timothy chapter 3. She is talking about the last day. Think Revelation chapter 20. Think Daniel chapter 12. I know that him, he has died in faith looking uh, for the work of the completed work, the vicarious work of the Messiah of Christ. I know that he's going to live again at the last day before you've set up your kingdom. That's what she's talking about. Now go back over to Matthew chapter 24. The reason I said that is I want you to consider their mindset to the thing. They're not thinking about the rapture. They're thinking about the end of all things. If I can put it in a New Testament expression... They're asking him, Lord, what precedes your Revelation chapter 20 coming when your saints come and you establish your kingdom? That's what they're wanting to know. In fact, I would go back and I would say that that's exactly their mindset here at this time. How can the temple be destroyed, Lord? What about Daniel's prophecies of the abomination of desolation? What about the, Daniel's prophecy about the kingdoms? What about Isaiah's? Half, a third of Isaiah's prophecies deal with the millennial kingdom. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, as we read the other week, there's about 300 prophetical mentions in the Old Testament, the prophetical writings. There's still about 200 of them that haven't yet been fulfilled. What do you mean the temple's going to be torn down? 
And they've gone to him privately, just in case, you know. That's how we ought to go to one another, right? Lord, what do you mean by all that? The people have cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. You've got a triumphal entry. Lord, when are you going to sit on your father's throne and declare a kingdom? Notice your notes, getting a little bit behind here. When seeking to interpret prophecy, one will quickly find it is not an easy task. Extremes abound. The belief, one extreme, the belief that a prophet always spoke out about a definitive historical situation. That's one extreme. Thus causing each prophecy must be fulfilled in an immediate and near state. One extreme in interpreting Matthew chapter 24 is to say he was only talking about 70 A.D., which is just 35 years away. Note a second extreme. A second extreme would be some moving to the other extreme, saying that you can read the future even in past events. So therefore, uh, if the prophet mentioned a particular nation in the past, then that stands for a contemporary nation today. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll see a, uh, a mentioning that God will make about an eagle, and there's been many, and oftentimes their dispensationalists get carried away with themselves, and they'll say, look, that eagle, that's definitely a mention of the United States of America, because after all, that's our national bird. Those are your two extremes. One's over here, and they do it. They, I, I've read books where they're take, talking about trees at the New York uh, Ground Zero, and that tree's in Jeremiah, and it's this tree that falls down. They're on this far extreme. They've moved away. There's no way the individual's presence that heard it could have known any indication whatsoever of what God was talking about. There's two extremes. One, it had to already happen, and one, we've got to kind of force it to happen. The best view when dealing with biblical prophecy is to note the historical background of each prophecy. If the fulfillment of said prophecy cannot be accounted for in the immediate or the near immediate, its fulfillment must be in the future. And that last answer is how we're going to look at Revelations chapter 6 through 19. But did the Lord put anything in Matthew chapter 24 accidentally? Did he say something he didn't mean to say? No, we don't believe that. We believe in the verbal inspiration of the word of God. We believe that what God said he meant. He didn't accidentally say nations and really mean nation. That's the indication. And so if it has not been fulfilled to detail, because, right, we can go to Zechariah the prophet. We can go to uh, uh, Micah chapter 4.8, thou Bethlehem Judea, right? It was the birth of a savior. We can go to Isaiah chapter 7, and all of the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ's first advent, his coming as a child, were they almost fulfilled or exactly fulfilled? To the letter. To the letter. Then why, when it deals with his second coming, would we not also deal the same way? And that's what I'm suggesting to you. Such is the case in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. Two important questions are often disputed about this chapter. Number one, does this passage have a global or local implication? Is it just around Jerusalem? Because then that can be 70 AD. Or is it global? Because then that would yet lie ahead. And the second question is, has this prophecy already been fulfilled? And if you want to add to it, you could say, or is it yet to be fulfilled? Those are two questions we're going to look at. And like I said, there's a number of these verses that we are not going to be able to get to in the next few moments. But I want to finish this lesson for us today. It's our position 
that this passage has global implications. Now, let me give you eight reasons. You've got your handout. This is one of the blessings of doing a handout. I can go quick. You just need a couple of words. Let me give you some reasons, eight reasons why Matthew chapter 24 is global, not localized. 70 AD, the destruction by Titus and Vespasian of the temple was a local event. It did not involve the entire world. And I'm submitting to you when the Lord is talking about the coming and the end of the world here in Matthew chapter 24, he's not talking about 70 AD. He's talking on something on a global scale that will only then be fulfilled in the times of the revelation. Let me give you this. Number one, look at chapter 24 and verse 7. Notice what he says. For nation shall rise up against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Here's eight specificities. In chapter 24 and verse 7, the common specificity of nations against nations. Here's the reality. 70 AD was not in the same mold. The kingdom against kingdom and nations against nation involves a large group. The Jews were not a nation in 70 AD. They were a provincial sect that inhabited the Judean countryside. Who were the two nations? You had the kingdom of Herod, the Idumean, who was allowed to reign because of the Roman procreators there in that realm. The Romans ruled it. You don't have nation against nation. What you have is a nation putting down a revolt. It's global. Notice the second thing. It's the specificity of the preaching of the gospel. You're there, Matthew 24. Look in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached where? In all the world. Does that sound like it's local to you? What's all the world mean? That's why I take it. Everywhere. By the way, it couldn't have been fulfilled in 70 A.D., the disciples were really just getting underway. The apostles, they're only 70 AD, you get thereabouts. You've only got certain churches into part of Europe. That's it. You're not around the world yet. Notice the second or third thing, rather. There's the specificity of the historical claim of world history. Look at verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor, ne, uh, no, nor ever shall be. All right, so here's the thing. If it's localized, right? What happened if it's localized in 70 AD, the destruction had to occur, would have to be worse than it's ever been before. I can tell you this. Titus and Vespasian, father and son duo, was the top general in the, the, uh, the Caesar at the time, slaughtered a lot of Jews. But if you wait about 70 years, you come on to Hadrian, and it's estimated Hadrian killed more 70 years later than what happened in 70 AD. So no, 70 AD, as bad and awful as it was, as symbolic as it was, it did not touch on the same level of devastation as what was had 70 years later. It's a global appeal. There's a historical claim of world history. Notice, if you will, in verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of trump, and they shall gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. That's a powerful synopsis there, but the idea there, the specificity of the gathering of the elect from the four winds. What's he talking about? They're everywhere. 
It's just not some localized view that this is Jerusalem only and he's gathering around Jerusalem. No one could misinterpret. The disciples could not misinterpret thinking that Jerusalem was the world. A fifth one. This is in Luke chapter 20. I put 24. Did I? Yes, it should be chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 in your notes, and I'll just read quickly in verse number 20. He says, and ye shall see Jerusalem, it's parallel passage, ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Did not be, it was not fulfilled in 70 AD. You're looking at massive armies, but in the prophecies of the Revelation, you're talking about massive armies that will come and be present, Revelation chapter 19. So Jerusalem being compassed with armies. Uh, number six, there's the specificity in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24 of uh, the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Well, if the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled, if it was fulfilled locally in 70 AD, why are we still having Gentile domination at this very moment? At this very crisis over in the nation of Israel right now, are not Gentiles still having tremendous influence? Absolutely. You know why we've sent and activated servicemen around the world? In fact, the United States of America right now is actively doing everything they can to prevent Israel from doing what they want to do. We're using it every leverage. And the reason why? We're not looking to fight World War III. Well, if it's not the times of the Gentiles, we're not having this conversation. Uh, it's a global idea here. Number seven, there's the specificity of the distress of nations in verse 25. This is interesting. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, the stresses of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Now, if you take that most literal, that lets me know that that does not involve Jerusalem. You're certainly not talking about 70 A.D. There's distresses of nations. Then lastly, in verse 35 of Luke chapter 21, it says, For a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now, I submit these eight, some stronger, some less so. But there are eight reasons why this is a global matter, not a localized matter. Now, let me give you the answer to the second question. It's also our position that though there are certain parallels, the fulfillment of this prophecy lies yet in the future. And these all start with D. Some of them I've already touched on, but back to Matthew. Uh, here's the reason why they are uh, not only global, uh, but they lie yet in the future, not completed in 70 AD. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 5, he talks about deceivers abounding. In fact, in verse 4, let no man deceive you. A deceiver shall be many that say, I am the Christ. You could also note in verse 11 and verse 24, I find that interesting. It's not one expression, but it's three expressions that there'll be worldwide tales of a global appearance of Christ in the sense of Old Testament connotation, and all of them will be false. Massive, abounding deceivers. And friends, we do have some groups that attack. Muslims are probably the largest that attack the deity of Christ. They do not believe that Christ was anything more than a prophet. They put him on the same plane of Lot and Abraham, etc. But there are very few the world over that attack and call themselves the Christ, quite like what we'll see in the future time, particularly when you get to the Council of Revelation and you've got one that can do signs and miracles. That's where it all falls down.
In 135 A.D., you had uh, Simon Barcoba, um, son of a star is what it means. He changed his name, and he led the revolt against Hadrian. And you know what happened to him after about three years? He died. But they called him a rabbi. They, they assumed he was the Messiah, and they followed him. And within three years, you know what they did? They buried him, and he did not rise again. It only took them a little period of time, but Simon Barcoba could not bring signs and miracles. He said he could. He said he could deliver them, but he failed. There's been no other Christ to do the miracles that Christ did. Uh, there will be a coming false prophet that will be able to synthesize his own resurrection. Match that. He'll be the synthesis. He'll be the antichrist. Future fulfillment. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 6 through 10, you've got abounding devastations. He talks about wars and rumors of wars. Uh, if 70 AD was the finality of it, please tell me why we've had greater wars since 70 AD. There's been 14,000 hot wars in the history of humanity uh, with close to a billion people dying over those uh, 14 some thousand wars, and yet they continue and have so at least all of my lifetime. A.D. 70 was not the fulfillment of the abounding devastation. Notice in verse number 7, the conclusion part of that verse, he talks about pestilence, earthquakes, and diverse places, and these are the beginning of sorrows. That phrase, beginning of the sorrows, it talks about those labor pains is the idea. Friends, I'm telling you, though there have been earthquakes in Jerusalem. We know of this. Biblically, it speaks of it. There's earthquakes abroad. I would submit to you the continuation of those lie yet in the future. You come to Revelations, will you find about earthquakes there? Absolutely, you will. Uh, chapter 24, look in verses 9 through 13. 9 through 13, he talks about they'll deliver you up to be afflicted, kill you, and verse number 10, then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Uh, by the way, time won't allow us, but if you were to look over to the parallel passage of Luke, you know who's betraying one another? Father will betray son. That's what Luke talks about. When does this happen? It's yet in the future. It's the end time. In Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the voices of those martyred. You know who told on them? You know how they got caught? Family. Ratted them out. No wonder in 2 Timothy and in Romans chapter 1, he talks about how man will be a lover of himself, how he'll abandon natural affection. So awful will be that future time. So awful will be that future time that a father that is an unbeliever looking at a son who has rejected the Antichrist, he'll write that son out and rather see that son die and executed death than to live. By the way, that is by part and parcel, not part of the Jewish experience. Not in the same manner. Luke chapter 21, you'll find about the abounding destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's still present. There's never been a time in human history where the Jews have not been present in the land of Israel. There's Jews now still in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's still a thriving city. She has not been destroyed in the manner in which it was supposed to happen. She was greatly ravaged. And I certainly think that 70 AD is a forecursor of that which is to come. 
but it pales in comparison of future prophecies. Matthew 24 and verse 15, you find out about the desolation of the temple. In fact, in verse number 15 of the passage, he referenced it, it was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Well, what was Daniel speaking of? Well, Daniel was in one sense, and I believe this to be the case, was speaking about a, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes that comes in and desecrates the holy area. But then Jesus mentioned it. That means it yet lied in the future, and it couldn't have been Herod the Great. So you could say, well, it's 70 AD, and certainly there's a level of desecration. But in continuation, it seems that it lies yet in the future. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, you've got desolations. This is a major one. When was it if 70 AD, if it was already fulfilled, when was it that you have the sun being darkened? There's no record of the sun being darkened. When was it that the moon should not give her light? When was it that the stars shall fall from heaven? When was it that the powers of the heaven shall be shaken? All of that's yet future. It can't yet have already happened. There's no record of it. If those things happened, they would have had to happen limitedly, and there would be some documentation, either from the Romans or the Jews, about said events happened, and they don't exist. Yet the book of Revelation talks about one day they will. The only way to escape this one is to say that it doesn't mean what it actually says. And what a travesty to start changing the themes of Scripture because then all of a sudden eternal security does not mean eternal security and the death of Christ on the cross does not mean what it means and Christ even is not Christ. Lastly, Matthew 24 here in 30 and 31, you have the abounding diadem. And I'll read this. And then shall appear the sign of God, the, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and glo great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Let me ask you a question. Do they see him? They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, that's a marvelous thing to consider. That tells me Revelation 19 as he's descending with his saints and gathering up all of the Jews from around the four corners of the earth, the world shall behold him. 70 AD, did the world see Jesus Christ? No, he had already ascended many years before that. This passage that the Lord gives his disciples is not one in which Christ communicated history. The disciples were fully cognizant of Hebrew history. These disciples supposed the kingdom of God was going to immediately appear. With the crowds gathering with hosannas, as he entered triumphantly and cleansed the temple, they fully expected him to establish his kingdom. This passage is one of future prophecy. It deals primarily with two specific questions the disciples had. Number one, what was the sign of thy coming? Perusia. Usually it means your presence your arrival, but it can also mean your manifestation. And this is the way in which they were using the word. They were not using it in the technical sense, like you'll find the Lord using it in verses 27, 37, 39, also in some of the Pauline epistles. For the disciples had no idea that Jesus Christ was even leaving. They were asking him about his coming, where he is going to be manifest. He had already told them when he asked, Who saith thou that I am? And Peter said, The Christ. He said, Flesh and blood hath not given this you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he charged them that they do what? Tell no one. 
This is what the disciples are rehearsing in their mind. When's that time where you're made manifest? When's that time when the whole world is going to see you present? And secondly, he said, what is the sign of the end of the world? You know, this phrase, the end of the world, is used in Matthew chapter 13 twice. The Lord used it. And it signified the gathering of the wicked for judgment. These disciples were curious about the coming of the Lord and the end of this world system. And for these some 15 reasons, we hold to the theology that this Olivet Discourse has global implications and is of great future importance. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 